0: This podcast is brought to you by producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky.
1: G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. Now, this week I've recorded a very special episode, well, special to me, but a bit different. Um, what's different about it is that I'm being interviewed by the legendary... Sydney Morning Herald journalist, international analyst, author of many, many books on authoritarianism, Peter Harcher. Now, Peter's a hero of mine. He's been on the podcast before. So it's obviously a big thrill for me to have him interviewing me about my new book, The Sun Will Rise, which has been released this week. So if you haven't already pre-ordered it and you haven't got it in your hands already, please do order it. Um, Get your hands on it. The Sun Will Rise. It's about... Uh, my experiences in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, it's fiction, but it's very much based in reality and the things that I saw and what happened there. And so the reason why I've written it the way that I have is that I'm hoping that people such as yourself who want to understand a little bit more about the stakes of what's happening in Ukraine right now and why it's absolutely relevant to all of us and why our uh, our fates are indelibly linked to what happens in Ukraine, um, please get your hands on the book. And please enjoy my conversation with Peter, where he puts me in the hot seat. But it's a, it's a fun chat, and I hope you enjoy it.
0: Uh, well, Misha Zelensky, welcome to Diplomates, except this time you're on the opposite side of the microphone. I'm doing the interview. <laughs>
1: And you're the victim. Yeah, that's right. I don't think it's fair in that I'm replaced by Peter Harcher interviewing me, whereas in reverse it would be me interviewing you, which I think is a far, far easier ride for you. No, we've done
0: that before. This, this, is much,
1: <laughs> this is much more fun,
0: much more novel. <laughs> fun for you probably, yeah. Turn the microphone around. <laughs> so uh, we're here to talk about your new book, um, a work of fiction based on what you've learned and seen in Ukraine. And I have to congratulate you. Great read, oh, and thank you. Holds the tension very nicely right to the end, which I won't spoil for <laughs> readers just yet. But um, it's not your first book, and I wanted to talk about you for a minute mm. before we get into the meat of the new book, "The Sun Will Rise." Um. So, your last book was a book called "The Right Stuff," and it was a book about the Labour Party. Yep. Um. At the time it was published, the Morrison government was riding high in the polls. We were still in a COVID lockdown, and Labor was looking like a pretty hopeless case. In fact, there's been a lot of despair and hand-wringing about the long-term outlook of the Labor Party, until, of course, the moment uh, they won resoundingly last year. So that was one apparently hopeless cause that you championed. Um, Then this book, which is, uh, you know, it's about Ukraine... Ukraine looked for a long time like it was a hopeless cause, as as the Russians pounded it and the tanks rolled in. Mm. But that wasn't uh, necessarily uh, the end of the story either, as as we'll discuss further. But that plus you were an official with a, an Australian trade union for a long time. Does this make you? Saint Misha, the patron saint of hopeless causes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I certainly don't think anyone's about to uh, welcome me into the sainthood, but uh, uh, in terms of... Well, I'm also a St. George, you Dragons fan, so it, that would complete the box set there you go. of absolute lost causes. <laughs> I, in fact, I'd say the Labor Party, Ukraine and the union movement have got far better prospects than my beloved Dragons, but... <laughs> That's oh. got to be, okay, I think that's got to be your next your next book,
0: <laughs> Giving Hope to the Absolute Hopeless. <laughs> Indeed. You also wrote uh, another book, I think your first book, um, which got you into trouble, mm. and uh, Parents Block Your Kitty's Ears, the title was He's an asshole Anyway, published in 2012. Um, how did that book get you into trouble and where does that locate you now?
1: Well, I mean, it's a matter of public record. Uh, so... Uh me and my idiot mates thought it would be a wise move to uh, write a dating advice book, a humorous, satiric, satirical uh, dating advice book. But um, now, whether or not it was uh, the intention may have been pure, the execution was clearly diabolically bad. And so, uh, first sort of surfaced, if you want to put it in those terms, in 2015 in your newspaper, actually, at Heath Aston. No uh, stone goes unturned. It's <laughs> a great for the Sydney, Sydney Morning, Morning Herald. Herald. Independent always. Um, and so, uh, I at the time put my hand up for pre-selection in the Labor Party, and as things go, people look through your past and it came out and obviously copped kicking for it and apologized for it at the time because when I look back on it, it's enormously embarrassing, right? A um, you know, good piece of advice, they say, don't get a tattoo before 30. The other piece of advice I would add is don't write an idiot's guide to dating with your idiot mates and think <laughs> that it's going to be funny. Um, and so look, yeah. It's the voice of wisdom, voice well, of experience right. and wisdom And I can't there. take it back, right? I mean, it's it's part of my history. Uh, everyone, whether they are thinking it or uh, asking me about it, it's something that clearly people know about me. It's not a secret, but mm. it's something that I'm obviously not proud of. Um, but, look, you know, you just got to hope that people take you at your word and that, um, look, I've, I've apologised for it and I mean it. Um, not that it makes any great difference, but I, we were, it was well-intentioned, if you can you know, use that term. It certainly wasn't something that was trying to be offensive, you know, sometimes jokes can be offensive. And so as a writer, we'll find out if I'm a decent fiction writer, we now know for the f- absolute record that I'm a very, very poor comedic writer. Uh, so I haven't got a future <laughs> in that. Uh, but, look, uh, I accept the criticism, right? And and I and I, I get it looking back on it. I wish I hadn't done it. You can't undo things. You can't take them away. You can only own up to them. And I and, and hope to – I've reflected on it. I, yeah, look, I'm nearly – approaching my 40th birthday um that was in my you know mid-20s when we did that now that mm. some would say that's still quite old and yeah look maybe I was an immature um bloke in his 20s but um you know it, I think it's how you respond to these things and do you try to grow as a person I think I'm a very different man I would hope them the man that or the boy perhaps that wrote that and uh, uh look like, yeah you've got to try to hope that you can redeem yourself in some way and I ask people just to judge me on the totality of the things that I've done and the criticism was that it was demeaning of women. Right. Yeah, sexist. Yeah. yeah. And, and there were jokes in there that were clearly sexist. Well, we'll, uh, we'll
0: come to the role of women in your latest book right. in a minute. But uh, before we uh, launch fully into the book, one more question about you. Mm. Your surname mm. uh, bears a striking similarity to that of a certain uh, president of Ukraine. Are you related? (laughs) Clear this up for us.
1: No, no, no relation. Uh, Zelensky, Zelensky. Uh, Now, that may not mean much to the untrained ear, but clearly uh, there's a a different letter. Um, Now, is it indicative that we're from the similar part of the world? One would say yes. Uh, Smith and Smythe, perhaps. And so, um, look... Uh, there, there is no resemblance. The funniest thing about that in terms of uh, the name is that as I was travelling around, people looking at me, listening to my accent. In Ukraine. In Ukraine, right? Yeah. As I'm travelling around Ukraine, people looking at the name and the passport saying, where are you from? From Australia. Who the hell are you? This makes no sense. Like, why are you here kind of thing? And, and so I had a lot, plenty of uh, sort of runnings like that. But no, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is a legend of democracy and I am a uh, – Failed comedic author, as we've covered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you're an agent of hope. Uh, and and really, I mean, the, the, the meta message of your book, I suppose, is one of hope. Um, that the world is in the process of feeling the return of fascism, I would call it. Yeah. Uh, and um, fascism certainly in Moscow, uh, but also in Beijing, I would yeah. argue what what the Chinese Communist Party has produced under Xi Jinping is uh, it fits the definition of fascism, um, for which the Chinese Communist Party years ago called for my sacking. By the way, when I put that in print. Um, <laughs> well, glad to see that the uh, SMH did not heed that call. But... No, well, if they did, the, the, the mail is very slow. Um, <laughs> but look, we, we both uh, wear the, the badge of honour of being uh, condemned by by um, autocratic states. We're, bo- I think, we're both banned from travel to Russia, aren't we? Yeah, I think yeah. we're both
1: sanctioned. Uh, we're both sanctioned. Yeah. It. So it's a it's a it's a club where you wear that badge with with pride. I think. Um, and look, I think it was one of those things. Let's be honest that. Um, It's like, you can't quit, you're fired. I had no immediate plans. I don't know about you, Peter. I had no immediate plans to travel to Moscow after my work in Ukraine. But uh, Vladimir Putin, in all his wisdom, has confirmed that I can never go back uh, to Russia. Um, But look, yeah, I I certainly wouldn't go there, nor would I go to to China, frankly. That's uh, that's, uh,
0: the voice of wisdom yet again. Um, The hero of your novel, Oksana Shevchenko? Yes. um, She's a union official. Yeah. Um, she's young. She's capable. Um, she is a hero, and um, she's a union official. So, yeah. first of all, congratulations on turning <clears throat> that that uh, uh, caricature of union officials around. <laughs> um, but, but secondly, uh, we don't. I haven't heard anything about the role of the unions in Ukraine during the war, during the resistance what what have they been doing are are they were they just was it just a useful device where you you had some experience uh, to tell the story through the eyes of a union official or have they been important to the resistance effort? well
1: so firstly i mean there's an old saying in writing write what you know right and so the the concept of a union leader being the hero of the book came to me only because of the i guess the the premise which you know, quickly touch on but basically an invading army captures a nuclear power plant, which is what happened in the war in Ukraine. The Russians captured it after firing upon it, mind you. So they shot at this thing, which was just wild, um, yeah. the idea of that largest power plant in Europe, um, one of the biggest in the world. And so well, after they capture this nuclear power plant, they say to the workers, you're going to keep working here, effectively as prisoners, and if you don't, it blows up and we don't really care. Right? And I thought, God, what an awful dilemma to find yourself in a moral dilemma, a physical dilemma, you know, a horrific sort of uh, set of circumstances. And and I'd spoken to some of the people um, inside uh, some of the, these facilities. Um, oh, did you? Hmm. Yeah. And so uh, that idea stayed with me um, just as a concept. Now, in terms of um, the union movement itself within Ukraine, now clearly the whole country has been mobilized. So it's a, it's a, all shoulders to the wheel situation. When I was in Krivirig, which was uh, Voronezh Zelensky's hometown, I travelled there during the early stages of the war because I managed to get a ride there flatly. And it was. I
0: remember that piece you wrote about
1: it. Yeah, yeah, it was one of my, probably my favourite piece. It's like a 5,000 word profile of Zelensky, but really the town that made the man, so to speak. Um, and it's a steel town. In many ways, it reminded me of Wollongong. So being a union official, um, at the AWU, I represented steel workers among many industries. And one thing I learned traveling around Australia, traveling around the world, is all steel towns have a similarity about them, got a similar hmm. sensibility. It's hard to explain. It's kind of rugged, working class, tough. Um, and this was a really tough town. So you know, Zelensky grew up in a post-Soviet steel town. It was like Rust Belt meets Eastern Europe meets... Um, Crime, gangs, etc. And so it's got the highest rate of cancer. It was overrun with gang violence in the 90s when Zelensky was growing up, famous for it. And so I thought, man, because at the time, the trope about Zelensky was he's a Jewish comedian playing the role that the, the country needs. And that's true. He's a comedian, he's a masterful communicator. But I was like, someone who comes from a town like that is a tough man, right? And so he, my estimate of him is that returning to his roots which is his actual upbringing in a really tough town and so to go back to your question about unions i I dealt with the unions um you know being a union official they were, were quite open and welcoming to me and getting around looking at the steelworks and looking at the facilities um they're obviously still very active uh but everything is subservient to the war effort. And so that's really where all the effort goes. In yes, they're not going to call a strike. To, no, right, obviously. The war. Right, one so more they were
0: showing yeah. you around the facilities while the invasion was underway. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so... What uh, was the atmosphere like? Uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's hard to explain being in a war zone because it can feel very normal and very surreal. So in a normal sense, you could have a beer with people in town and chat like life's normal and... Things can in that moment when you're having a joke and you know we're eating this uh, local delicacy which was fish uh, jerky, which I don't know if you've ever had it, but it's interesting. I enjoy it. Visually, it looks like fish skeletons, and so that comes out. and The bloke I was with it was a German guy, who was my driver. He more or less nearly fell over in his seat at the <laughs> idea of eating it, but it was very. It's good. Um, it goes well with beer. But but you, you're sitting there in a room, having a beer, sharing a few laughs. And then, of course, a, a, a missile siren goes off, and mm. so that sense of like normality um, that's punctured by um, you know this surreal sense of very real uh, uh, physical danger mm. and omnipresent physical danger from what we thought at the time, at least, the world's most or second most powerful army. So uh, it's it's hard to explain, but at the same time, the sense of resolute determination was always there and and, and has not disappeared. The nuclear power plant that
0: you mentioned in the book, you've created a fictitious one that bears a strong resemblance to the actual one. Right. You might have to correct my pronunciation here. Is it Zaporizhia? Yeah. Yeah. Power plant? Uh, We heard a lot about that earlier in the war. What's the status of it
1: today? Do you know? Well, so the Russians essentially have mined the thing. Um, so i wrote a piece about this when i was last in uh, ukraine a couple of months back and so uh, apart from having shot at it mm. the, which is just again wild in my estimations um they then uh have been using essentially using the, the facility when they're fighting in and around that area as a shield if you know and again it's just like extraordinary proposition and then also, they uh, had mined it. Now, and so the UN inspectors have gone out and visited it and, uh, you know, checked it out. Of course, the Russians take the mines off, and the moment the inspectors leave, the mines go back on. And so uh, it sits there almost as a dirty bomb, mm. a, a, an implicit threat. And you know, the scary thing about it is that. Uh, the Ukrainians were raising the concerns about the Russians might blow the Kharkovka Dam. Mm. Now, you might remember there was a large dam that got blown up as the Ukrainians were planning their counteroffensive. I think, about May, June last year. The Russians blew that dam. The Ukrainians were saying, it's been mined, they're going to blow it up. And, of course, the Russians saying, you know, well, of course, we would never do that. And then, of course, it happened. And so, you know, you you sort of sit there and go, geez, of course, they would never do that. But, um, well, maybe they would and... And given that they've shown complete reckless abandon for that facility, for Ukraine's land, ultimately the, the worst bit about it, essentially the, the plant is more or less inactive. Okay. Like it's It's been sort of tempered right down, if you can put it in those terms, not producing a lot of electricity. Most of the cooling towers are all sort of shut down. Having said that, if you detonated the thing, mm-hmm. no one really knows what might happen. And unfortunately, you're not looking at, Probably a Chernobyl, but you're looking at a uh, an enormous geological disaster, an ecological disaster in and around the site, and it could be really large part of Ukraine's land that would be destroyed more or less forever. And so that's the, that's the the scary bit there because the the incentives are the Russians could basically destroy a lot of Ukraine's land and not really harm themselves. I guess if you want to look at it in those terms, as days. long as the
0: wind is blowing in the right direction. Well, indeed, right.
1: I mean, there's like I mean. Yeah, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, it wouldn't be that scary. I said, look, if you know how to blow up a nuclear power plant safely, then, um, you know, I'm not sure anyone's quite worked out how quite to do that because it's never been done. And I'm sure something could go wrong. And while yeah. we're on this uh, very disturbing
0: subject, uh, the, the Russian Vladimir Putin's nuclear brinkmanship that he's played with mm. all the way along, huffing and puffing and trying to make himself intimidating even as his troops are failing, Right. Uh, how do you read that? Should we, should, we, should we expect that at some point he would actually use either the uh, Zaporizhia plant or a,
1: a, a nuclear bomb, or is that simple saber-rattling and we should just relax well, about it? Well, it's good. I mean, I love your thoughts on this. I, I've debated this and people have put it to me. And look, nuclear war is scary. The term nuclear is not a term you want to hear when it comes to explosion or missile or war, right? So I don't say these things flippantly. Uh, sort of at a macro level, my assessment of it is Putin talks about nuclear warfare when things are going very badly for him on the battlefield. So he sort of says, no matter how bad it looks, just remember I've got the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So you must respect me no matter what. Now my military might be humiliated. My economy might be smashed to pieces, uh, but I could still blow up the world. And so essentially he's reduced Russia to a, a you yeah, call it a petrol station with a nuclear arsenal, right? But nevertheless, it's a real threat, mm-hmm. a, a, a threat that we've got to consider. Um, unfortunately, when you sort of think it through strategically, there are bad options and worse options. So the bad option is we just have to say, okay, well, that's a threat. And, you know, will he follow through on it? Or will he not follow through on it? We don't know, of course, right? But... Let's play out if we did capitulate to that threat. What's the incentive structure you've created for Putin? So, if he, he says, yes, exactly. well, you know, Ukraine must surrender, I'm going to nuke everyone. Okay. We give in to that. I mean, That's does surrender. anyone seriously think that that would be the last request that you get from Putin once he well, realizes? Of course, it's-, it's surrender to a terrorist. Correct. It's terrorism, it's blackmail, it's whatever, right? So, I, I don't sit here and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we've got to hang tough. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not scary, but it's impossible. Mm -hmm. We can't possibly give in to that for those reasons. Then if you actually start to build it out a bit and say, okay, would he do it? I think Xi Jinping paid him a visit a few months back. He's gone really quiet on the nuclear stuff since then. I suspect that the Chinese leadership may have gone in there and said, listen, mate, uh, you want to drop your pants here in Ukraine, do whatever it is you need to do, we're going to tacitly back you in and and under the table going to help you how we can. But we don't hear anything about nuclear weapons or explosions because that's now gone outside of your sort of domain, so to speak. And China, whilst far away from the action, is not that far away if you're talking about serious nuclear weapons. So I think there's that plot, that in play. And then I'd also say that, and this is in the weeds a little bit, but people are talking for a little while there around tactical nuclear weapons. So, what's a tactical nuclear weapon? Uh, a small nuclear weapon that you can blow up on the battlefield that doesn't cause, I guess, you know, complete devastation. Uh, so it's like more of an isolated <laughs> explosion. Uh, yeah. I, and I think perhaps he was contemplating that, possibly. I think he may have been looking at that as his armies were getting routed over a year ago. But I think. I'm sure his generals told him this, that there's probably no great benefit to him doing that. So what is it? If you're going to use a tactical nuke, you really want to turn the war right? Because what, the threat of doing something is much scarier than having done it. Yes. And that's just a fact, right? Once it's done, people go, okay, well, now I can price that in. So you get all the negatives of having launched a nuclear weapon. I think that would be the end of any trade with India, the end of any trade with China, et cetera, et cetera. And it wouldn't change the things in the battlefield because – the Ukrainians are, in modern warfare, you don't just have your large, they don't have 100,000 troops sitting there waiting to be hit with a nuclear weapon. I mean, the Russians kind of do, amass their troops in that in that way. Um, but, so there's actually nothing you could do with it other than mm-hmm. the feeling good about it and going, all oh, right, I've launched a nuke. There's really no, it doesn't change the battlefield and geopolitically and geostrategically, it's enormously damaging, which brings us to the uh, Zaporizhia uh, power plant, uh, the nuclear power plant. Um, that's got some level of plausible deniability to it in Mm -hmm. that they say, well, it's Ukrainians that are mining it. we didn't, I mean, they're still denying they blew up the Khakovka dam, right? Mm. But the Ukrainians blew up their own dam to impede their own offensive across their own land. Naturally. Right. Right. As you do, because you know, you'd want to make it harder, but nevertheless, right. So they might get into those areas. So yeah, I I wrote a piece about if anyone wants to go back and read it, but that's plausible. I still don't think that they will, but I think that's in, a, in the plausible space because Deniable uh, uh, sort of ecologically contained all the damages in Ukraine and it would cause a huge problem for Ukraine in terms of advancing um, mm. militarily. So, yeah, I hope not, but it's possible.
0: And on just before we leave the subject of uh, nuclear weapons behind, <laughs> yeah. uh, you mentioned the visit that Xi Jinping paid mm. to Putin and it was uh, the only red line that uh, Xi Jinping drew for Putin was don't use nuclear weapons. Uh, and it it would make sense that Putin would take that seriously because right. if the worst comes to the worst for him and he's got to find a safe haven if, he's, if his regime is falling, oh, yeah. there's a coup against him, whatever, which capital city can offer him a safe haven plausibly and protect him from... Enemies. There aren't many. Beijing oh. could do the trick. North Korea. It's beautiful. No, this time North, of year. No, here. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, according to what I read out of North Korea, it's always. Oh, beautiful. it's always fantastic, right? Have you? Mm-hmm. You have. Uh, you're a nice writer. You've you've always oh, had a, you've always had a nice, nice pen. No, no, it's just uh, it's just true, and you've applied it in the book. You've got a you've got a couple of phrases that I particularly um, uh, liked. Um, a genocide of freedom a genocide of freedom. Um, it just really sat with me. Mm. Do you want to expand on it? You don't have to. It's well, an o- optional I mean, extra.
1: I mean, I think the term genocide gets thrown around a lot now and, and we, we're hearing it about a lot in the context of um, the Israeli-Hamas uh, conflict um, in the Middle East. Uh, it's certainly been used to describe what the russians have been doing to the ukrainians and what russia is trying to do the ukrainians is completely and utterly erase their culture and they've been trying to do that not just this year and last year not just since 2014 where they commenced a small invasion by illegally occupying crimea and invading in donbass with a proxy army uh they've been doing it for the 20th century the 19th day, and going back really since the founding uh of uh of, of Moscow after Kiev Rus was uh, founded uh, a few centuries before. And so the, that phrase, as you read it back to me, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I think it just came out, right? I mean, it wasn't something you appreciate this as, a, as a, a, can I say, a far better writer than I, Peter. Our subconscious, right. subconsciousnesses often do our best work for us. Right, right. And so when I think about it, um, the real point I'm trying to make in this book throughout is that the stakes of this conflict are more than just a territorial dispute between two grumpy neighbours in Eastern Europe. Hmm. This is about what kind of world we want to live in. Do we think free and open societies have a purpose? Do we want to keep them? Because it's not the natural order of things. It might feel like that, right? Because we've grown up with it. Right. As you and I sit here in Sydney having this conversation, it all feels enormously normal. This is how things would be. But this is man-made, decided by humans. We made it up Mm -hmm. and it is the minority position and a shrinking position at that, right? And you talk about this a lot in your writing around the democratic recession over the last 20 years, but uh, what's happening in Ukraine, the idea that large countries can destroy smaller countries because they don't like their system of government or the decisions that they make. Australia is a 25 million person country occupying a continent in a part of the neighborhood that doesn't really share our values. Now it's it's mixed, but overall, you're talking about New Zealand now. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um, with the the, uh, the omnipresent threat of New Zealand rejoining the uh, the Commonwealth as a uh, you know, uh, well, they they would say they didn't join. We would say we threw them out, right? But the, the the WA came in and New Zealand went out at the last minute, as we know. So people can make their own assessments of whether or not that was the right deal. Uh, <laughs> but um, this is just not the natural order of things. And so you have to fight for them, you have to stand up for them. And if we allow Ukraine to fall uh, and create a world where might is right, Australia cannot exist, cannot exist safely. You know, might is right world where large authoritarian regimes can either invade or bully into submission countries that they don't like. And so uh, I guess, you know, coming back to that point of genocide of freedom, that's what's happening. That is what's happening. There are, there are various definitions of
0: democracy. The Economist magazine in its annual ranking lists only uh, the number of uh, free democracies in the world. It's got it down to 21 mm. out of 200 countries in the world. Right, 10%. Only 21 left. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't panic because in World War II it got down to a dozen. Right. There were 12 democracies left on the planet and we managed to you know, uh, recover. But still mm. that... Your expression, a genocide of freedom, I think might uh, come to mind for a few of us in the years ahead as Chinese and Russian expansionism uh, burns, burns on. Mm. In, the, um, in the book, uh, in your novel, The Sun Will Rise, you talk about uh, early in the invasion, early uh, in the book, there's a union meeting where there's a couple of thousand union members and they've, they've got to decide how they're going to handle the, occup- the Russian occupation, Well, you don't call them Russians in the book, but it's a Russian They're definitely (laughs) definitely the (laughs) Russians. (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't think it was. It could be
1: be, uh, some large uh, Eastern European nation. Um, Yeah, people can make up their own minds.
0: And the union members have to decide uh, whether they're going to. Essentially, there's a temptation to defeatism. Mm. Um, uh, What's it matter? They're all politicians. Nothing will change, just the leadership. Uh, It's not worth dying over. When you were there early in the invasion, was defeatism, was there any defeatism? Was it a real phenomenon? Were people urging,
1: put down your weapons? Uh, well, I arrived a week before the war started. And I didn't really know what to expect when I arrived, clearly. Um, everything I'm reading is about Russia's got 200,000 troops amassed on the borders on the, you know, the north, east and south of Ukraine. Right, so I'm thinking, bloody hell! Right, this place is going to be at fever pitch. When I arrived, there was like nothing was happening. It was almost like a suspension of reality inside the country. And looking back on it now, because I thought, well, so much talk around of 2014, the the revolution of dignity or the Maidan revolution, where uh, Yanukovych was tossed out for wanting to essentially tie the country to Russia rather than sort of become more European, which is what the public wanted. Um, I thought it might be a lot of flat giving a lot of jingoism, a lot of nationalism. You know, this is Kiev. This is where the, that revolution happened. There was none of it. It was very mm. muted, mm-hmm. and these things all get lost in the wash because we look at Zelensky's heroism. But remember that when the uh, United States and its partners, but principally the United States, maybe a little bit of the UK, were front-running the intelligence, so they were le- yes. immediately declassifying everything that they knew what the Russians were up to and what Putin was up to, which was actually. A stroke of genius which is i think we'll look back on that in history as just a brilliant maneuver because it framed this conflict as one that putin would have to do on you know by it'd be a war of choice because putin wanted to do it for putin's reasons not some silly uh you know false flag operation or that the ukrainians are provoked him, whatever everyone and and that was that rapid declassification was critical but within that zelensky at the time was saying you guys are revving this up you're over egging it stop buddy you know talking about war we don't want any war here so there was mm-hmm. really a strong sense that they they did not want a war with the russians and also whether it was i don't know um you know a frog in the pot type situation they've been in some sort of like low level conflict with the russians really since 2014 in donbass to lesser extent crimea so mm-hmm. you know they, there was you know the the prevailing view was if there was gonna be a war, maybe Putin might come in and gobble a bit more of Donbass up and that might be that, right? What no one expected this full scale invasion that we saw. You never thought he might be flexing. And so um so so that was, you know, the mood at the time. And then after Putin declared war, and I will never forget it. I remember he remember the he had that open meeting of the National Security Council, or the Russian National Security Council, this performative yes, meeting yes. where he was essentially making his lieutenants and heads of security agencies, et cetera, you know, tell him what he wanted to hear. And famously, some of them we didn't really quite know. So they're like, uh, we shouldn't invade Ukraine. No, we should invade Ukraine. or <laughs> We should uh, partially invade Ukraine. And, you know, we should recognise the, you know, the Donbass Republic. So, and so it was, you know, a, a bizarre bit of sort of performative theatre in a mm. you know, King's Court type situation. Uh, but then Putin gave a speech shortly thereafter where, yeah, I was watching it in Russian. I can speak, understand Russian, and um, I remember thinking to myself. Now it wasn't quite the same, but I remember it, it had an unhinged quality to it, reminded me of Hitler hitting and the lectern. And you've got to be careful of these comparisons. Everyone's Hitler, but you know Putin's as close to Hitler as anything we've seen in our lifetime since World War Two. And and there was this unhinged, guttural belief that Ukraine had to be brought to heel, and I thought. We are in deep shit here. And mm-hmm. so after that speech, he then essentially declares war. And then, coming back to your point around defeatism, the explosion of Ukrainian identity.
0: Mm.
1: People switched overnight from speaking Russian to Ukrainian. The flags came out everywhere. You know, We all look at it now, this ubiquitousness of yellow and blue, but it wasn't there at all. And then it was just everywhere. And so, you know, Putin is the architect of his own nightmare, right? So what does mm-hmm. he fear? He fears a Western-leaning, democratic, Ukrainian nationalist nation on his doorstep. Well, because of his invasion, he's got it, <laughs> um, right? Oh, yeah, he fears the expansion of NATO. Well, because of his invasion, he's mm-hmm. got it, right? Mm-hmm. Finland and Sweden made the rational decision to immediately join. So everything he fears, he created. Mm-hmm. So we're the agents of our own demise in some ways, I guess, and, you know, in a kind of some sort of Shakespearean tragic way, but... Um, or in the case of the Ukrainian people, the agents of their own resistance, well, the correct. agents
0: of their own hopefulness, correct, and, and I maybe think, the
1: agents of their own future, ultimately. Well, I don't think that's right. I think what they're going through, and this is horrendous, to be clear, this is horrendous, but it was a more argued proposition within Ukraine. I'd say the dominant position was we want to be more Western-leaning, but plenty of people speak Russian. Kyiv is a Russian-speaking city. I mean, the irony around the places that Putin has bombarded, the horrible irony, is is that these have tended to be the more Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, at least traditionally. Though, of mm. course, now most of uh, the country has switched in, in large part, certainly younger people, to the to use of Ukrainian. Um, yeah, but I think it's, what they're going through is a little bit like the United States, what it went through in its war of independence in casting off the Brits They've fought for and secured their own freedom, something we've never done in Australia. And mm. I think that's as, as we have a different sensibility around our nationhood here, We should talk about. But I think they're going through a crucible that's similar. Mm. And when they do win and whatever victory that they do have, I think there's a very different country that's going to emerge there. There's mm. not going to be this sort of post-Soviet backwater that a lot of people take it to be. It's, it's highly innovative, very European in its outlook. The young people there are the thing that give you hope. The oldies are still a bit Soviet. A okay. bit ticker clippy, if I can put it. You know, There's a little bit of something in it for everybody, that right. kind of Soviet mindset. Young right. people do not want that, do not want to go back to that. They're extraordinarily innovative. Hmm. Um, you, know, you and I love public policy, so I'm just going to tell this anecdote. Everyone else can uh, tune out. But uh, after Russia invaded Donbass and Crimea in 2014, a lot of Ukraine's productive economy mining heavy industry is in the eastern bit of ukraine so mm. russia basically ripped out ukraine's economic heart so ukrainians are like shit what are we going to do so they they took it upon themselves to do enormous amount of investment into tech into training of software engineers so you, the amount of ukrainian software engineers have been mm. pumped out over the last uh near decade but five to ten years um they are you know if you're familiar with uh, people might have seen there's an ad uh, Grammarly, which is a you know thing that helps people write. Who you know, I use it all the time. From it was actually written by Grammarly. <laughs> but um, I thought it was ChatGPT. Right? Well, oh, exactly. <laughs> Those comment. Well, we've superseded. But that was a Ukrainian company. There's plenty of these mm. tech companies, and, and and so many tech people around Europe um, are Ukrainian. And the Ukrainians have got this emerging tech economy. You go to the even now during wartime, you go to cafes there, are people working on laptops. It feels like you could be in any other sort of democratic, advanced economy, um, that kind of... Well, and that album. sort of...
0: And those skills helped Ukraine defeat... 100%. The cyber war that yeah. was
1: feared to come from Russia and right. wipe Ukraine's yeah. defences out. And the never, cyber war, but also the, the battlefield innovation. Yeah, yep. Right? Ukraine's battlefield innovation, the power to the edge. I mean, the, seeing a lot of competition here in terms of systems, right? So it's authoritarians versus democracy. It's, you know, it's freedom versus oppression. But it's also about... Uh, Power to the edge and command and control. Why does the Ukrainian army perform well? Because the decision makers can make decisions when they need to on a tactical basis. The Russians are decentralised, right? The Russians are sitting there going, "What does Putin reckon?" Yes, right. And if uh, and if Putin's telling the, yeah, you know, he's made the fatal error that all dictators make—is that I know how to run this war better than my generals. And once you're down that pathway, then you're in real dire straits. So anyway, so it's a long answer, but
0: you referred to the. Uh younger generation's tendency to Europe rather than Russia, even before the war. Zelensky's comedy series that he made, the Mm. TV series, Servant of the People, one of the episodes that struck me and illustrated that same point, I think, was uh, Zelensky, the actor-comedian, obviously years before Russia invaded, uh, acting as the president of Ukraine, uh they decide that they're going to join the European Union and the European Union accepts Ukraine as a member. The next morning, uh, President Zelensky gets out of bed in, his, in the presidential uh, home, opens the curtains, and the entire city is deserted. Right. <laughs> Every single Ukrainian has, has left the country right. and they've all flocked into Europe and he's the only man left <laughs> <laughs> in all of Ukraine. Right. So that indicates the, the, uh, the true affections of the Ukrainian people, that was pretty instructive. You talked also about the flag, mm. uh, the Ukrainian flag and the outburst of nationalism a- and uh, patriotism. And that's a big theme in your book is, mm. is symbolism. We, uh, you know, it's common in human discourse to say that something symbolic is therefore unimportant. Mm. Only things of substance matter. Right. And symbol- symbolic gestures are, uh, you know, useless or tokenistic. Right. And yet in the book... And I guess I mean your book is based on your lived experience of Ukraine in war. Um, those symbols are, are more than um, are, are more than reality. Uh, they define the reality of of the patriots. Mm. And at the heart of your book, um, there is a struggle. It's a psychological struggle. Sure, there's um, there's weaponry and there's you know um, there's there's people killing each other. But the psychology of the Ukrainian people uh, who are at first anxious and feeling cowed and then slowly uh, assert uh, their own confidence and turn, turn their willpower into the dominant force and it's the Russians then who lose heart and I won't spoil the book for anybody but it, the psychological picture you draw through your characters mm. is, is very nicely drawn and the power of the symbolism, um, the golden lunchboxes, for example, <laughs> um, th- th- these these things are not only symbols of hope, but they seem to actually carry the reality of the resistance movement with it. Um, is
1: is that how it felt? Is that is that how it was? Well, uh, is that ab- how it is in Ukraine? Well, absolutely. And and just to pick up on your point around symbolism, and not to go down a Australian domestic dog leg here, but which had the voice referendum. I was a supporter of the voice. Uh, one of the things I objected to was when people said, well, if it's symbolic, then what's the point of it? And that was a trope that, uh, yeah, I'm on the progressive side of politics, right? I'm now one of the most moderate guys in the Labor Party, probably that people would say, but nevertheless, I've come from the right of the party, but nevertheless, those are my views. And, you know, I started my career at the Aboriginal Legal Service, but... Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and in out in dubbo and so um the idea that symbols don't matter is a nonsense so because I, I would say to people that would contend that it's okay well i'm going to burn the australian flag how do you feel about that you do feel affronted? i i would feel affronted. i hate the idea of people and so i i also push back on that argument of people say well flag burning should be fine because it's just a, it's just an item well it's a nonsense we know that's a nonsense you know that the, the crucifix is a symbol. They're all manner of symbols carry history with them. Why do we have them? Because they communicate something. They communicate something about an essential truth about uh, you know, uh, about a people's common history and identity and and, and perhaps a mission, which is in the case of the Ukrainians. I mean, who could have hand on heart told people what the Ukrainian national flag was? Before February 2022, not me. Well, there you go. And uh, you know, I, I'm a yeah you know, bit of a nerd, and I think I probably I probably would have gone close, but I'm not sure I would have necessarily known the order of the colours, or and and yet now it's become like a a, a symbol mm. of freedom. People look at that, and go that's resistance, that's freedom, that that means something. And so um, you definitely feel that that flag flies high and proud mm. um, in Ukraine, and and they fly it for that exact message of hope and defiance. And
0: on the the obverse side, the autocrats are terrified. Well, indeed. Uh, The Russians, you know, Vladimir Putin's afraid of the Ukrainian flag. And look at the trouble Xi Jinping's censorship regime goes to to rub out any symbol to the point where last year some of the protests in Beijing, in Shanghai, were people just... Holding, holding blank
1: blank sheets of paper. Right. Um, no, so I, I completely agree. And so that, that, that message of symbols being strong enough to defeat the most powerful autocratic army is something that I leaned on heavily in the book because ultimately the residents of that town are outgunned. right? They're occupied. Now, there's a war going on, but they are occupied. And so how do they beat them? They're beaten by beating them in the head because they have virtue and the mission on their side and the, and that indelible human want to be free mm. versus uh being an oppressor there for unclear reasons for you know either you're a mercenary or you're there on some kind of bullshit mission it doesn't when push really comes to shove when you're really under pressure when the stakes are as high as they are in ukraine the side fighting for something that matters is a side that's going to prevail we've heard uh, for years in
0: uh studies and writings and uh Academic discourse about international relations, hard power, soft power, sharp power. Mm. uh, And what the Ukrainian people have reminded us of, I think, through exactly what you're discussing and through the sheer grit of their resistance, uh, is the importance of something we've another kind of power we'd forgotten willpower.
1: Mm.
0: You managed to write this um, love letter to the Ukrainian people and yet retain some empathy for the Russian occupiers. Um, for the Russian military officers, they are human. They have their own feelings. They have divisions between themselves. They're real people that you've populated your novel with.
1: Um, was that hard? Look, I mean, I mean, no. Because I do, I do think that the real villain here is Vladimir Putin. Um, and he has deeply corrupt that society and unfortunately they need to have a societal reckoning that i'm not sure that that will happen because going back to your point around nuclear weapons uh, to destroy nazism completely required the raising essentially of you know the third reich and the german nation Mm -hmm. and rebuilding it from the ground up Um, and so that toxic influence and that russian imperialism russian fascism whatever it's metastasized into under putin is has really corrupted a lot of people in that country um but i think you wouldn't be human if you didn't have some sympathy for the people that have been thrown into this conflict without having any sense of why they're there what the true mission is they've been lied to now clearly clearly my uh absolute um affection and hope and support is for the ukrainian side because they are being murdered raped tortured um, and oppressed by an authoritarian thug regime next door but i think when you zoom right down um things are a little more complex and what i've tried to do in those characters and and i've talked about this in the authors which we perhaps get to but I've tried to also dig into a little bit of the history between the countries to some degree because... Mm, Yeah, um, because so much of it is shared. Well, indeed, right? And, you know, you talked about New Zealand before flippantly, right? But that's a country that we intimately understand. It's some kind of like, you know, fraternal relationship with brother and sister or however you want to frame it. And so we get one another on a level. And those two countries in Ukraine and Russia, whilst they're... Uh, in a horrible war right now. They do get one another in some way. Now, I don't subscribe to Putin's thesis of it, which is uh, this, you know, I'll spare everyone, but go, if you're really bored, go read his rambling essay of 2021 around the indivisibility between the Russian and Ukrainian people, which essentially said Russia owns Ukraine. Ukraine mm. doesn't exist. We made it up. In fact, Lenin made it up, according to Putin. But uh, parking that sort of nonsense, these people know one another mm. and have a history together and during the Soviet Union it was much more mixed in and so I've tried to sort of draw out some of these contradictions and what you know what that would mean for people in this situation uh, now I don't expect no one should have sympathy for the you know the the, the Russian bad guys and they are the baddies uh, in, in this book but I've tried to add some level of nuance to it rather because I don't think it would be a believable story now this is I chose fiction for because allowed me to be a little bit more creative and if i get any of the history wrong or any of the facts wrong i say well you know it's a it is a fiction based on real based nets. on facts right 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 so that's probably my <laughs> own my own safety net but it's not really believable people are caricatures and uh if they are just pure caricatures of the worst of the worst which many of them are um it's not i think interesting writing and it's not a story that people mm. would understand and if you look at uh, any of the reports coming out of occupied uh, Ukraine, where the Russians are trying to stand up governments, and it's basically what I describe in this book, um, it's a mixed response. Not everyone hates it necessarily. Mm. Um, stability, certainty, uh, you know, the warm embrace of the motherland. And so I try to sort of give voice to the complexity of that in some way without, without hopefully offending... Um, any of the Ukrainians who quite clearly are right to feel deeply angry and aggrieved about what's happened. I, th- I hope I've walked that line.
0: In your uh, author's note, you, you open it by saying, to spend a week in Ukraine is to fall in love for a lifetime. Uh, and you deploy uh, tactically through the book some Ukrainian poetry mm. quite powerfully. Um, can I ask you to share with us some lines of the... Ukrainian poets that most appealed to you?
1: Yeah, so um, so uh, this was a bit of a challenging element because I w- I've wanted to sort of draw on Ukraine's cultural history, which Russia, you know, we talk about symbols. You know, why has Russia uh, throughout history tried to destroy Ukraine's language, its history, its uh, yeah, its uh, cultural identity because it fears it and it doesn't want it to exist. It wants to russify everything, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially Ukraine's culture must be Russia's and anything that it's got that it likes, it makes Russian. And so there was a very famous uh, uh, Ukrainian freedom fighter, poet, you know, thinker, they're all poets and thinkers and, you know, philosophers, it was all combined back then. And so uh, one of the poems that I quote, and I changed it a bit to de-identify it because we talked about, yeah I don't expressly call the countries involved Ukraine and Russia, but there's a poem by uh, Taras Shevchenko. So Shevchenko being the name of Oksana Shevchenko, who's the the heroine of the of the book. Um, so the the poem I like is my testament, and I'm going to uh, lift the curtain here. I am reading this, so don't think that I'm quoting this off the top of my head. Only Malcolm Turnbull can do that. Who did it on my podcast famously? <laughs> well, um, we'll come back and check in with you in a few weeks. We expect you to practice it <laughs> at home, but, but this is my testament. So. I'll read the first and the third uh, paragraph. So when I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine, my tomb upon a grave mound high amid the spreading plain, so that the fields, the boundless steps, the Dnieper's plunging shore, my eyes could see, my ears could hear the mighty river roar. Oh, bury me, then rise ye up and break your heavy chains and water with the tyrant's blood. The freedom you have gained, and in the great new family, the family of the free, with softly spoken, kindly word, remember also me. So that was written on twenty five December, Christmas, eighteen forty five, and it's very powerful for me. Mm, Very, and it reminds me a little bit of the blood on the wattle. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. um, And so when I first, you know, I, I was learning about Shevchenko and looking at Ukrainian history and. That poem stayed with me, and I'm glad I found a way to work it into mm. uh, the book. With enormous apologies to Taras Shevchenko for tinkering with his work. <laughs> well, it
0: strikes it strikes a, a powerful emotional note in the book. In the book, you don't predict the uh, ultimate victory of Ukraine and the ultimate failure of Russia, although there's a premonition. But you don't go so far as to say Vladimir Putin has lost the war. You, 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 have, you haven't uh, taken it that far. and I, Without going into detail, cause I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but I can't let you go uh, without asking for a forecast of how things are going to go from mm. here between Russia and Ukraine.
1: Look, it's, it's hard to know because there's two things driving the war. The military engagement, the battlefield, which is happening right as we sit here, notwithstanding the fact that the news now is being dominated by a different conflict in the Middle East, the war is still raging. Um, you mentioned this in your column, uh, Ukraine's had a pretty big advance taking territory on the other side of the Dnipro River just in the last week right no one's talking about it but it's yep. happening and so believe it or not things happened despite not being reported on but uh, <laughs> they're on the other side of the river now right and so rivers uh, they were very advantageous for the Ukrainians in their last uh, you know, counter-offensive of a year ago when they recaptured Hudson because the Russians were stuck on the wrong side of the river but of course being on the other side of the river gave them a pretty big advantage to hold the Ukrainians off. And the Ukrainians have punched through and driven the Russians back. So that's a pretty big advance, tactically mm. and strategically. Um, the rate of victory, really, uh, Ukraine will win, but the pace of victory is set by the weapons. So we essentially, that's a speedometer, mm. is how many weapons we're prepared to give the Ukrainians and the types of weapons. If you look at the aid that's been given, unfortunately it's come too slow and in too small amounts. So the Ukrainians are still fighting the Russian army with one hand tied behind their backs. They don't don't have the aircraft that they need. They've only just recently got attackums, which is a long-range missile system. The weapons that they've had, they've used very, very effectively. They've taken over half of the territory that Russia captured uh, after February of 2022. And so militarily, I've got zero doubt that Ukraine's going to win. What this comes down to is the politics. So Vladimir Putin's taking a bet that he can outlast we, us, democracies, the royal we, um, that as he put to uh, Barack Obama in 2014, essentially saying, I'm always going to care more about Ukraine than you can ever care about Ukraine. Um, you now, that's the big test for us. Mm-hmm. Is the war in Ukraine just some distant war or does what happened in Ukraine really matter everywhere? And You know, we don't know. We're going to look back on history and it'll tell us. But I worry that are we gonna either we're going to look back and say this was you know we're into the second year of the third world war you know that sounds really scary but when you look at the history of World War it didn't just break out suddenly kind of built up to it over a number of years and you know I hope that's not right I hope that it's recorded as Putin's great folly where uh, he overreached he, Gambled, He came undone and his regime in the end lost either the war or hopefully lost its entire control of Russia. that would be the, the wish for it. And so the big test in 2024 is there's 2 billion people going to the polls but 350-odd million of them are in the United States or maybe it's more than that now. I can't keep on top of the US population, probably nudging 400. But what happens there? I mean... Yeah, you know this, Peter, you talk about this all the time, and you and I collectively hand-wringing about this probably in, in our writing. Um, yeah. Putin is betting on a change of regime in the White House and not just a typical shift from red to blue or blue to red, clearly it's blue at the moment, but from democratic small d. so It's democratic capital D, but democratic small d to fascist. And, to uh, the return of Donald Trump. Right.
0: And we've, as we know, Donald Trump is an admirer of Putin. He mm. said that he could bring this war to an end Overnight, right? Presumably by taking Ukraine out of the fight. By- well, there's only
1: two ways you can end the war overnight, Peter. It's nuke Russia. Presumably he's not going to do that. I hope, uh, or give up on the Ukrainians and say you guys are done.
0: So if that's right, and if he is in fact going to win, then that gives the
1: Ukrainians a year, right? The next election, essentially. In the US. And so that that is something that you know the Ukrainians. My position. You know, people say whether well, there should there be peace when there should not be peace. Well, I think the Ukrainians will win but ultimately it's their call i don't think this idea that politicians the diplomats in smoky back rooms can carve up ukraine and say well this is the deal that you guys should live with i mean that would be a disaster and, and and an abandonment of the ukrainians and i think would be seen as an enormous betrayal of their of their bravery and you look at it the reticence to send weapons just baffles me because it is a deal of the century that we have at our fingertips here which to knock off one of the world's most odious regimes, one of history's most odious regimes, effectively for free. They're not saying, come fight with us. They're saying, just give us the weapons and we'll do it. I mean, God, like, that's a deal you should take every you know, every second of every minute of every hour of every day. And so that, that I think, would be an, an enormous problem. But having said that, if the Ukrainians are looking at the prospect of a Trump presidency, maybe, maybe not, it's too close for my taste, Um Uh, you might think to yourself, well, should we sue for peace now? But that's for the Ukrainians to decide. I don't think it's for us to decide. And I think that's the critical thing in all this. And just lastly, I just might make the point that one of the things that I worry about, again, looking backwards, we only know about these things looking backwards is that Putin, the world might have missed a moment here. Putin was teetering on the precipice. He faced a coup attempt. Mm. Now, in that all that instability had there been a massive battlefield reversal i think that's the end of putin i don't think he can survive another battlefield reversal of the like that we had in september october november of last year of 2022 when the ukrainians captured most of the northeast and herson in the south i think he's cooked in that situation but we didn't push we didn't give the ukrainians what they needed and he's you know putin's now whilst not going forward not going backwards at a quick rate and he's perhaps consolidating and the russians are learning right let's be clear the russians are learning as an army they do have a history of doing that and they have an ability to absorb pain and so i I still wouldn't bet against putin getting knocked off by people close to him a palace coup not a i I can't see it being a a people's coup it'd it'd be a palace coup and i don't think well i could have russian democracy but yeah there's a part of me that thinks shit did we miss a moment there Mm. Uh, Mm.
0: final question is um on the question, well, one of the very earliest points uh, about about uh, your writings about women, the hero mm. of the book, uh, Oksana Shevchenko, uh, is, is she the hero of the book uh, because this is a statement about the role of women in the resistance in Ukraine, or is she the hero of the book because this is Misha Zelensky's redemption <laughs> after, after, after offending people with... He's an asshole anyway.
1: (laughs) Maybe it's both. (laughs) No. um, So I I put this in the author's note. Um, The characters came to me just organically. And I thought it was interesting for there to be a young woman leader in a really blokey environment. You know, a blue collar, blokey environment, the kind of which I'm very familiar with, having grown up in Wollongong, having worked in a trade union for 12 years. And so I thought that's just an interesting character. So that was – it started there – and, um, now she's based probably on an amalgam of some of the very impressive Ukrainian women that I met throughout the course of my traveling around Ukraine and, and civic leaders, military leaders and others, political leaders. Um, it did, I didn't do it deliberately, but what ended up coming out as I wrote and I realized after I sort of had the draft done was that the, the heroes and, and you know, the that were the, organizing the resistance all happened to be ukrainian women and the the villains were were men now people look at that and go did he do it, deliberately do it subconsciously I, it just came out that way and i thought well, actually that's in and then i thought about maybe i should change it Thought so actually no that makes it's kind of a nice parable for the machismo of putinism and, and so,
0: so women do play an outsized role yeah, in the resistance. 100%.
1: And that was my experience of it. And I think that was actually how it came out, hmm. was that why was that at the forefront of mine? mind? Because that was the interaction that I was having as I'm going around the country. I'm dealing with a lot with like young, dynamic women leaders. Maybe that's because uh, men by a large number had been drafted into the military struggle. I don't. Yeah, that could be a factor, but maybe it's just the way that the country's reorganizing itself politically and uh, economically, but um, that was just my experience. People talk about the Ukrainian superwoman. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, 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 a thing that people often remark upon and it's real in my experience. And I so hmm. uh, <laughs> people might say that I've done it deliberately. It wasn't chosen deliberately. Maybe it was my subconscious uh, speaking through the pen, but I, I, it's something that just came out as I'm writing. And writing, as you know, Peter, is a, is a weird process it just it sort of flows out of you without i think they say people are architects or gardeners uh, as writers and so people plan it all out i'd probably more in the in the garden of so i have it in my head to some degree but it kind of comes out on the page is there is there a third option can be a can you be a juggler
0: that's, <laughs> that's how i write uh um, mrs congratulations on the sun will rise it's been a pleasure reversing the microphone on you
1: well thank you so much peter and uh appreciate your very generous, generous uh, reviews and, uh, and great generosity of time and spirit to come interview me on this very, very boring, boring podcast, probably the best episode ever. I think everyone will agree, but thank you so much. Thanks so much to Peter Harcher for interviewing me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As you can tell, Peter did not pull his punches. Uh, I did allow him to ask me whatever he wanted to ask me, even though it's my podcast. uh, And I thought that would make a a better conversation for you all to listen to. And uh, you know, I guess applying the rules that I applied to my guests. So uh, thanks so much to Peter, a huge thrill for me. If you haven't yet bought it already, please do order it. Uh, The Sun Will Rise, it's available at any of your online bookstores or also at every other bookseller that you enjoy getting your books from. Or you can go to thesunwillrisebook.com And I've got plenty of links there to uh, places you can purchase it around the world and in Australia. So thanks so much for having listened. Um, Also, a small favor to me. If you do buy the book and you read it and you like it, please do give it a review on Amazon or on Goodreads or whatever it is uh, that you uh, enjoy interacting with people about books. Also, if you could post about on social media, feel free to tag me. Tell me whether you liked it. Tell me which bits you didn't like. That'd be great as well. I don't mind, but I would really appreciate if you do try to spread the word and by giving reviews and ratings, it does help drive the algorithm to encourage more people to buy it because I really do. Look, it's not about me, I guess, uh, selling more books. Uh, What's important to me here is that people understand the stakes of what's happening in Ukraine and and why we need to care. The more people, hopefully, that read the book uh, might share that view. So thank you so much. Also, if you're Australian, uh, I'm, I'm currently, as you're listening to this episode, I'm in the United States um, having my book launch events in Washington, D.C. and in New York. But if you are based in Australia, I'm having some events on the 5th of December in Melbourne, uh, that's at St. Kilda at Readings, and also on the 7th of December in Sydney at the State Library of New South Wales. At that event in Melbourne, um, Ambassador. Miroshenko from Ukraine will be appearing with me. And at the Sydney event, Premier Chris Minns and ALP President, former Deputy Prime Minister Wayne Swan uh, will be at that event launching my books. So please, um, if you're interested, do register, do get along. um, Buy the book, I'll sign it for you. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye for now.
0: You were just listening to Diplomats, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.